Welcome back to 77 Minutes in Heaven, the Dallas Mavericks podcast as a part of the Athletic Podcast Network. I am Brian Damaris, former director of basketball development for the Dallas Mavericks. And with me is the golden-throated one, the man who cannot wait for his all-star vacation so he can Instagram photos of his six-pack running on the beach, the TV play-by-play voice of the Mavericks, Mark Folliwell. In a few days, when that will uh, mean we won't have a podcast for a few days, but I'll be in Bucerias, Mexico, Brian, the Riviera Nayarit, about 30 minutes north of Puerto Vallarta. I'm very much looking forward to it. So four months in the offseason, not enough. He needs another week off. <laughs> I do. While we're all working, he will be on vacation. And then we'll be back for uh, all of the excitement when the Mavs start post-All-Star break play with six games out of seven on the road. But the matter at hand is to review these things that are happening in the lead-up to the All-Star break as we talk to you in the immediate aftermath of the Mavs 123-119 loss to the Utah Jazz on Monday night at American Airlines Center. Quite frankly, a game that is not as close as the final score might indicate. Uh, The Mavs trailed for the vast majority of the game and by as many as 23 points and a full breakdown and recap will be coming up a little bit later in the podcast Brian yeah there's a team that needs uh, the all-star break more than the Mavs maybe the Sixers but the Mavs desperately are in the dog days and need to get through one more game against Sacramento and we'll touch base on that a little later but let's review quickly the trade deadline that wasn't for the Mavs Mm -hmm. Um, they didn't make a move they were in the Danny Green discussion uh, so let's talk about it. And I've seen some comments about how we lost out on Danny Green again and damn Danny Green and all yeah. of this. Let's quickly break down. What... Are you reading my comments? <laughs> yes. Let's quickly break down what happened in that deal. So Marcus Morris was on the block. Of course, uh, Steve Mills, the president of basketball operations of the Knicks, gets fired two days before the trade deadline, which in a, in a James Dolan move, mm-hmm. extraordinaire. Uh, he had taken Morris off the trade market, and obviously maybe that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And um, he eventually was fired, and Morris was put back on the block. And the Clippers and the Lakers, the two teams competing for each other. The Clippers ended up getting him, but the Lakers were putting Kuzma in that deal. Now, Kuzma only made about $2 million. So, by definition, because of what Morris was making, somebody else had to be of significant value put in that deal. Right. And that was going to be Green. But the Knicks didn't want Green because he has two more years plus this one on his contract. So, the Mavs were more than willing to take Green off of the Lakers' hands. And quite frankly, Danny Green doesn't fit in where the life cycle of the Knicks are as an organization right right now in terms of the team that they're trying to build for the future. So that would have cost the Mavs their uh, Courtney Lee's expiring and the second round pick of the Warriors. Um, That may have gone to New York. I don't know if that would have gone to New York or L.A. Regardless, um, the Lakers ended up saying that two of their top five scores and two two of their closing lineup guys in a lot of ways Kuzma and Green was just too rich for Morris. Mm-hmm. So they were the ones who pulled out and decided not to do the deal and went with the Clippers deal of Harkless and a one um, and Jerome Robinson going from uh, the Knicks to the, the Wizards. So, the Clippers to the Wizards. Somebody to the Wizards, me. yeah. Somebody the Wizards like, by the way, Correct. Jerome Robinson. Yep. So um, that's why that deal didn't work, is the Lakers actually pulled out of it because they, they thought the deal was too rich. I think it would have been a great thing for the Mavs to to get green somebody obviously they coveted uh this summer for essentially the warriors pick 
but that's why that deal fell through. I thought that, uh, look, when we talked about it last week, you felt more strongly than I did about it that the Mavs were probably going to be inactive at the deadline. I thought there would be at least some chance that maybe somebody would want to get off some money, and so it wouldn't be necessarily that the player that Dallas acquired into their trade exception, which expired on February the 7th. They're $9.6 million. Yeah, they're nine points, the, the remaining $9.6 million of a trade exception that is at, at one point in time was $21 million. I thought maybe somebody would use that as a vehicle to shed some salary and maybe the Mavs could get an asset like a first round pick or another high second or you know something along those lines out of it. It wasn't even to me at that point that it necessarily had to be a useful player now as much as you know you don't let that expire without using it to its maximum benefit to attain assets that you can use to either draft players or use those assets to acquire established players in the future. But it didn't turn out that way um, and the trade deadline went. The winners of the deadline were clearly the Clippers I think by acquiring Marcus Morris, and then also on the Eastern Conference side of things, Miami added Andre Iguodala and Jay Crowder in a pretty good deal with Memphis. And so, uh, pretty good deal is an understatement for yeah. them to get Iguodala, who the Memphis was saying they weren't going to buy out and they weren't taking anything less than a one for him. Mm-hmm. For them to get him for Justice Winslow and to get off the contracts of Deion Waiters and James Johnson yeah. is amazing, frankly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they get Jay Crowder. Who certainly will be useful for them and will fit their culture of how they play, the the hard-nosed way that they play. And they were $12,000, I believe, from being hard-capped before this deal. Mm -hmm. They didn't have picks to give. Uh, They wanted Gallinari, and they would have had to take the protection off of their pick. They already owed the Thunder Mm -hmm. so that they could trade them another number one. They decided not to take that protection off. And Gallinari wanted an extension, which would have gone past 2021, and they want to keep cap space available for you know the class that's coming then, which is the next big free agent class. So Iguodala did agree to extension, by the way. Now correct. it's reported as two years and thirty million dollars, but the last year of it is a team option. Correct. The last it's fifteen. A, it's million. a one-year extension. Yeah, it's a one-year fifteen million dollar extension, which certainly at his age is nothing to sneeze at. But well, he only wanted to go to the LA teams, but when he was offered fifteen million, uh, I guess a, I'll go to Miami for fifteen yeah, million Miami dollars. Yeah, like, for that was uh, was really good. Now, as you mentioned, the Mavs didn't make any moves. Um, any moves they would have made would have been on the periphery. Zach Lowe did mention on his podcast that the Mavs, at the very last second, were in, in talks with a big name, but the clock ran out. I've been told that that's probably an exaggeration. You, you know, agents sometimes will will throw some stuff at reporters like that to mm-hmm. to kind of you know up the importance of that player or what happened, uh, that was really a non-factor. They, they don't really even have the assets to go out of out after someone that big. Um, but breaking news of something, and we're recording this uh, post-game, as you mentioned, after the Utah game, um, Michael killed Gilchrist, who was a name the Mavericks were attached to around the deadline, uh, cleared waivers this afternoon and was signed by the Mavericks just minutes ago. And it apparently seems as though Ryan Brokoff will be the person uh, waived because they do need to create a roster spot. Yeah, and we should probably spend just a little bit of time on the roster aspect of it and then analyze what Michael Kidd Gilchrist might bring to the table. But, uh, you know, Justin Jackson's who hasn't been playing a whole lot lately. Uh, His option was picked up before last year, the fourth year of his four-year rookie deal option. So he's on the hook next year for $5 million guaranteed. Uh, Courtney Lee, the prorated 
number that he's left for the remainder of this season is in the neighborhood of three and a half to four million dollars. The broke off prorated number that he's due for the rest of this season is somewhere in the neighborhood of four hundred thousand dollars. So that probably tells you, financially speaking, why that you know, I'm sure there's other aspects to it. I think of course. there's play aspects as well. Yeah, there's play Courtney aspects. Lee, Courtney Lee, as you saw in the Utah game Monday night, and the Washington provide, and Charlotte games over the weekend too, Brian. Right, can provide you something defensively as well as on the offensive side. Can hit a three. Brokoff is a completely one-dimensional player. Um, he, he's the obvious choice if you have to make a move. Yes, that would that is that is as very much true. as a nice guy that he is. We all love him. He's a great sure. person. Sure, of course. Um, it's the business of the league and. So, you know, that's what the Mavs had to do. Yeah, there is a there's a combination of financial and play aspects and what the player brings to the team. And in the case of what Michael Kidd Gilchrist brings to the team, now let's look, I want to tell everybody something to make sure that our expectations are in the right place going into it. Uh, because the Mavericks played Charlotte on Saturday night and and the move to release him from Charlotte did wasn't concluded until Saturday afternoon and I'd long since done my notes about the Hornets. Of course you had before <laughs> well they didn't play from Tuesday until Saturday. So I was working really ahead, Brian, uh, with a back to back for the Mavericks coming up. So I had done some notes on Friday about Michael Kidd Gilchrist Friday morning. And he has only played in twelve games this year. Four points, three rebounds a game, shooting 34% from the floor. His career numbers are 433 games played, eight and a half points, five and a half rebounds a game. A career 47% shooter from the floor, but that's primarily uh, as a two-point shooter and as a floor runner and dunker and guy who operates around the basket because his three-point number is 103s taken for a guy who's been in the league for eight years and has played in 433 games. So he's taking a three basically once every four games. 103s taken, 28 of them made. You're a smart guy, so I know I won't tell you that that's 28 percent, 28 out of 100. I know. <laughs> I mean, you were once a director of analytics and basketball development, so I don't. And I had that right here, just like that, just like that. Career 71 um, percent uh, free throw shooter, uh, 28 years old, and will join the Mavs in a situational defender role, most likely. Listen, the buyout market's the buyout market. They're getting bought out for a reason, mm-hmm. and you're talking about rotation players. These aren't yeah. difference makers. These are second team yeah. uh, bench minutes guys. This is a basketball player spackle that you, <laughs> that you yes. have at your disposal at this point to fill in some gaps. Um, but he is a really good defender. Yes, he, he is. He's a really good rebounder. And for the last year and a half of his career, he's been a small ball, a small ball big. He's played the four, mm-hmm. which because of the way Porzingis plays and on this uh, roster uh, fits really well because, as you mentioned, because of his offensive liabilities, you can't play him with another uh, ground-bound center that doesn't stretch at all. Mm-hmm. But so he, you'll never see him in the game with Collie Stein or Boban. But everyone else on the floor, you can play him with, and he is a good post defender as well as a perimeter defender. He can guard one through five. So you will see him. And, and listen, this team. Came in, into the Utah game uh, 18th in defensive efficiency, and I don't think tonight's game will help that any. <laughs> You're exactly right. <laughs> so if this team wants to do anything in the playoffs, uh, that's the side of the ball they've got to focus on. And he will help on that side of the ball. Um, I would agree with that. And, and you know, it, maybe initially uh, it's it's on a situational basis, but you know what? That could be really important. Yeah. 
um, because look at how they lost the game with not being able to do what they needed to do defensively for one last play in the sequence against uh, Bradley Beal in the game against Washington on Friday night. Um, you know, this team, as you noted, defensive numbers are trending down as of late. I think the highest they've gotten their defensive rating in recent memory was 14th, and now it's at 18th, and and that's at, that's going into the Monday night game against Utah, where Utah shot almost 60 percent from the floor and scored 123 points. So presumably that defensive rating is going to even slide back a little bit further. So uh, this is the number one rated offense, and. Uh, Again, nice guy. Hate to see him go, but to lose a specialist three-point shooter uh, who doesn't bring much to the floor defensively in the name of, yeah, we're going to have to kind of mask this guy's extreme offensive liabilities, but the defense is, is really, really needed. And whatever little minor bump you, you take, you're going to have to manage that. Uh, whatever minor uh, bump backwards you take on offense, you're going to have to manage that from a from a desire to have his defense on the floor standpoint. Yes, and if you're playing with four shooters, he could be a five with with four shooters on the poor, on the floor. He could be your four with Porzingis and three shooters. Uh, Porzingis obviously a shooter, but a big. Cleveland uh, a big. I mean, yes. to me, that's. I think he's playing. He's playing alongside when Porzingis is is the five or Cleveland's the five, right. and he's the small ball four. Right. I think that's where that's where he is used. And some nights he might get used 10, 15, 18 minutes a game like that. And some nights the situation may not dictate for him to be played at all. And offensively, he can screen. Uh, he can cut. He, he's not a bad passer. So he can run the floor. He can run the floor. So, you know, uh, I think he'll be serviceable on the offensive end in, in the scheme that Rick plays. Um, but he'll be a, a, a strong addition defensively. And again, Perspective second team rotation minutes, but uh, when you need that, you know they don't really have so, you know another uh, stop down defender other than Finney Smith on this team right now. Yeah, the second team rotation features um, you know the the best defender that plays a wing position on the second team for this Maverick group right now is Delon Wright. And so Kid Gilchrist gives you a bigger player in that regard than DeLon Wright. Um, you know, Courtney Lee's got some defensive ability, but there's probably going to be situational use for him moving forward as well, uh, especially once you get Luka back and you have a fully healthy team. And then players like Seth Curry and J.J. Barea are smaller guards who are being brought on the floor for what they could do from an offensive standpoint. Seth's lethal, lethal shooting ability, Barea's ability to still effectively run the offense whenever Rick goes to him as a spark plug player off the bench. So Kid Gilchrist will bring something that they don't really have in terms of a real lockdown defender off the bench. But again, with the with the offensive shortcomings, there will be situational uses for him and, and nothing more than that. And that's okay because what if you have a Clippers matchup in the first round, Brian, and you have to throw somebody at either Kawhi Leonard or Paul George on a nightly basis. And that defensive ability would come in handy. And as a player who is in the last year of his contract obviously wants to stay in the league and sign another one, he's going to be you know, incentivized to play as hard as he can and, and show that to the league and to the Mavs, who are basically doing this to take a test run on mm-hmm. him and, and see if he's somebody at a decent number they want to keep going forward uh, because of that. So considering the defensive uh, skills he has and the huge need, uh, we've mentioned what happened in the Utah game Monday night. Uh, let, let, let's dive into that game a little bit and your key takeaways from that one. Well, uh, Rick said it best in his post-game press conference. They were terrible defensively in the first half. Uh, Utah spent, Brian, a significant, if not close to vast majority of this game, shooting 
over 60% from the floor. Only with a fourth quarter slide and some turnovers and some missed shots do they fall to 59% shooting in the final box score. This is a rare time this year. The Mavs have been manhandled on the glass. 45-26, they get out rebounded. They went behind by eight at one point in the first quarter. Utah opened up a 23-point lead at some point in the second quarter. Uh, Tim Hardaway said that the way they've started games at home is embarrassing. Rick got on them at halftime, and that was reflected in the fact that Dallas played a lot better in the second half. But the gap was too big, and the runs couldn't be sustained long enough to make a serious charge at winning the game. They got to within three in the third quarter. They got to within four uh, by getting a three-point play with 12 seconds left to trim it from seven down to a four-point game. Uh, but 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 Utah always was able to make the run that they needed to make in the second half, either in the third quarter or with uh, Bogdanovich and Mitchell hitting enough shots in the fourth quarter to keep another Maverick late run in the game at bay. Yeah, 28-12 run to start the third. And then the Utah, Dallas, yeah. and then Utah went on their own 28-12 run yeah. to basically uh, negate that. Uh, Jordan Clarkson was um, really the star for that bench unit uh, for Utah tonight with 25 points. Uh, he's a real interesting study in what a player can be on a certain team. He played for Cleveland, was, was traded, I believe, on December 23rd, if that's the right date. Yep, you're right. Um, and has just you know really been a godsend for them. Uh, if you remember the Utah of the last two playoffs that lost to the Rockets, um, while great defensively, they just didn't have enough offense mm-hmm. to compete with Houston mm-hmm. or with any playoff team probably. So they knew that that was an area they had to address. Conley and Bogdanovich were great additions for the starting unit, but their bench was still really lacking in offensive production. Jordan Clarkson was brought in. They gave up Exum, who, while being the third pick in the draft many years ago, you know, never was healthy enough, never really rounded into form for Utah. Mm-hmm. Right. They gave up two picks they had from other teams, which are going to be probably in the bottom half of the second round uh, for Clarkson. And Clarkson has had essentially the same stats that he had with Cleveland, but because the fit is right with what Utah needs and the way they play – He's been a godsend for him, and it, it really is a testament to you can you can love the sexy names, but getting somebody who does what you need to do is really valuable. And I would keep that in mind with the the MKG discussion we just had, where or any other moves for that matter, that or any other moves make that or don't make. It's it's getting people to fit the role you need, and right now what this team needs are you know stop down hustle defenders and. You know, that's what MKG is, and that's what he can provide. And it may be a situation where, you know, he doesn't fit into what Charlotte needs anymore. They're, they're, probably rebuilding yeah. and wouldn't resign him in well there for sure wouldn't resign him anyway so um you know clarkson's been a godsend for him and 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 i said this on the telecast tonight that the other thing too is it's a look the trade deadline creates urgency and the final chance to do something for your team but if you're a general manager and you know what your team needs and you're willing to make a deal, and you can find another GM that is willing to make a deal with you, there's a lot of value in doing something six weeks ahead of the deadline like Utah did. I mean, Jordan Clarkson played his 23rd game with the Jazz tonight, whereas people acquired last week at the deadline are probably getting into their first games, basically, over the last 48 hours with the teams that acquired them. You have 23 games to get comfortable with your new teammates, your system, the new city that you're living in, and you really start to, you can really have an impact on the team, uh, um, you know, it's not all Jordan Clarkson, but I don't think it's a complete and total coincidence that before this recent five that they did have a recent five game losing streak, but 
Utah had won like 19 out of 21 or 19 out of 22 games when they beat Dallas on January the 25th in the game that was played. Great game, by the way, that was played up on that Saturday afternoon in Utah not too long ago. Uh, They did lose five in a row recently, but now they've won three straight. And Clarkson's been great. Clarkson's been the leading scorer, as a matter of fact, in these last two wins. 30 against Houston on the game won by the Bogdanovich buzzer beater on Sunday night and 25 tonight. He was the leading scorer in the game between Utah and Dallas. The leading uh, Utah scorer, anyway. He had 25. Bogdanovich and Donovan Mitchell both had 23. And as you mentioned, getting a deal done early is a, is a benefit because you don't get into bidding wars as well. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the Porzingis trade last year was done ahead of the deadline. Yeah, full week ahead of the deadline. Uh, if, if his name had gotten out in the trade market, you have no idea what yeah. teams will start offering, and then you're you're out of it. But a good general manager or president of basketball ops is making those calls daily, is checking in with people, knows who's available, when yeah. they're available. Has relationships. Has sure. relationships, and you jump on it. And if that's somebody you covet and in a position of need uh, for a role you really need, uh, you make that happen. So um, the last time we did this pod uh, was right before the Memphis game, which uh, was a blowout loss uh, for the Mavs. The Mavs now, after this Utah loss, are 14-14 and at home. You have to go down to the ninth spot in the East, which is Washington, or the 11th spot in the West, which is New Orleans, to find a team in the playoff rankings who are worse than 500 in home record. Mm. Uh, So, you know, the Mavs really have to figure out something going forward with with that. And look at what look at what's happened lately, though, as well, Brian. Uh, Phoenix came in here and handed Dallas their worst loss of the season by point differential, 29 points. Before that, the Mavs hadn't lost a game all year long by less than 15 uh, or by more than 15. I'm sorry. Um, Then. They beat Atlanta, but then Memphis blows them out. Game was tied points. At, game was tied at seventy-one in the third quarter, and then Memphis goes on a crazy run, like twenty-four to three, and then ends up winning that game by a comfortable margin. And then tonight they lose to Utah, and and and, and it was trail, twenty-three points at yeah, one point. Trail most of the game quite badly. Um, the final score doesn't look like a blowout, but a lot of this game was spent in blowout territory. Quite honestly, for the Mavs against Utah, so three of their last four home performances have been subpar, and that's about as politely as I. I can put it. Uh, so this is a situation that has to be rectified. Um, I, I felt like tonight during the game, and I think maybe you had a, a similar observation of watching it, I really think that that while the Mavs did a great job holding the fort together without Luka in December, uh, tonight to me it just looks like this team is desperate to have him back because of what they're missing without Luka and what it's forcing other people to do and the 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 energy that, that's expended on a nightly basis and how hard they have to play and all the different things they have to do to compensate for the fact that 29 points, 10 rebounds and 9 assists and a charisma and 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 attention that he draws and a way that he plays is, is sitting over there on the sideline right now. And everybody's stepping up a notch. You, you, you basically have in this game against Utah, you know, seven players you would normally play if People weren't injured, uh, available, and then Courtney Lee, Berea, and Stein, uh, Collie Stein played. But you know, in normal cases, they may not even see the court. So, uh, you know, you're seeing um, a need to really ramp up. Listen, it's the dog days. This team wants to get through the Sacramento game and get to the All Star break. But having said that, every team feels that way. Sure. So there's not really – I don't use that as an excuse. Yes, yes, I agree with you. Um, 
Let's talk quickly about some of the other games in the previous week before we look quickly ahead and then touch on the All-Star game and some of those implications. The Washington game, the obvious takeaway from that is the the final play. Um, it, you know, an obviously just awful ending. That's one of those where the defense should be switching everything and mm-hmm. Finney Smith didn't switch. Yeah, Finney Smith and Hardaway didn't switch. Yep. So... An awful ending to that game. To a game that, unfortunately, down the stretch, they, uh, you know, there were other things that were in Dallas's control. Um, and look, when you take a quick shot uh, and it goes in, you're fine with it. There was a Curry pull up three that he missed. Uh, there was, uh, you know, kind of a ticky tack offensive foul that I thought was called. Uh, you know, you you back off a guy like an Ish Smith, who's more of a driver, not a perimeter shooter, and he hits two big threes late in the game. But, I mean, look, the guy is at least a serviceable shooter now compared to what he was earlier in his career. And if you're not going to put a hand in the guy's face, if you're going to back off and not even challenge the shot, then he took it and made two key threes late in the game. So, look, there was just... Uh, there's a Hardaway miss free throw. Yeah, there's a Hardaway miss free throw. Uh, 1.8 left. You know, Dallas had gotten a rebound and come down, and they didn't call a time out and Hardaway goes one for two at the line. Um, so that was just, you know, the, the, the team they saw Saturday, Charlotte, Dallas lost to them on January 4th at American Airlines Center when they went down 21, came back, took a 12-point lead in the fourth quarter, and then lost that and ended up losing the game in overtime. Uh, even with the Toronto 30-point blown lead debacle before Christmas, that Charlotte game was my most annoying loss of the season. But then the Washington game and the way it ended has now put itself right in the same conversation as just most maddening, disappointing, frustrating, leave you so ticked off and something that the end of the season you might look back at at and say god i can't believe that that is that one game is the difference between maybe a spot in the standings at this point so they've they've they had an annoying loss Friday. They saw a team Saturday. They had a really annoying loss against as well. Now, they did come out and play play better and had a good bounce back on Saturday. And Charlotte was awful at the start of the game. Charlotte scored 10 points in the first quarter, which is the fewest points that any team scored in a quarter this year against Dallas. And and the Mavs took the lead and, and never really looked back from there and thankfully got a great game out of Seth Curry that night. Yeah, and he is ten, he was, made his first 10 shots. And he was 2 of 4 tonight from 3. Coming into this game, he was the leader all-time in three-point shooting. Uh, over his brother, yeah, I don't, amongst active players, I don't amongst yeah, active players. Active, I don't yeah. know if the two of four keeps him above because yeah. it was because it was at forty three percent, forty three point yeah, it's very close, literally game by game. But we'll see if that continues or not. We have been tracking and having some fun with that this year on the telecast a few times when he's uh, passed his brother. I think one other time it happened was when he had a hot streak to start a game out in Oakland or out in San Francisco against Golden State, and we had some fun. It's like oh, tonight he's passed his brother, so he's the the leader amongst active players and three-point percentage. And, and they're both sitting there between 43.5 and 43.7, basically. Well, I will tell you that uh, the brotherly rivalry is real. I know that my brother, Ted Damaris, and I played probably a thousand games of one-on-one basketball in yeah. the in the in the backyard on the driveway and uh, i would get two points he would get one point for every basket and uh, i beat him twice wow nine ninety eight and two wow so, man <laughs> you uh, can't I remember feel good about that both of those games <laughs> his patented move of course was he would give me like a 50 point lead and i would need one bucket and then he would he's seven years older than i am i might add <laughs> So it was kind of like Manute Bowl playing against Muggsy Bogues. Oh. Uh, he would block every shot and then score. And then his patented move was a, a three fading away running into the house <laughs> that he would make for the final shot to win because we would play to 100. 
And then he would lock the door and drink Gatorade, and I would just be standing outside <laughs> waiting to get in. Well, to the, the in the Followell household, it was, uh, you know, my brothers were a lot older, so the rivalry was with, uh, just to, to, to tell you how different we, differently we grew up, it was my hope to beat my dad in chess or dominoes. And so it took a long time to, to reach that. I don't know if my record is 2 and 998. I do uh, I do feel for you on that, though. We'll, uh, we'll have to get Ted in now for a podcast and, and get his perspective on his 998 and 2 record. Oh, he's still gloats about it. Uh, so the, Sorry to hear. Uh, Sacramento comes into town Wednesday night, um, and then it is the All-Star break. And after the break, we'll have a uh, road back-to-back next Friday and Saturday, Orlando and Atlanta, and then a home game against Minnesota. You hope to make some hay. Yeah, and then you've got a road trip that's going to feature... Uh, the first game against San Antonio, who will be coming off the rodeo road trip. A rodeo road trip where right now, by the way, they're 0-5 so far and still have to play Oklahoma City before the break and then at Utah and at Oklahoma City out of the break. Uh, they've lost to the two L.A. teams, Portland, Sacramento, and then lost uh, a somewhat close game against Denver tonight to put them at 0-5 now on the rodeo road trip, which used to be a galvanizing time of the year for San Antonio. And now it's it seems like this year it's a time when, when whatever hopes they had of getting back into the playoff race are fading and slipping away from them. Um, and then you got Miami on that trip. Uh, really tough game. Toughest game the Mavs have left in the month of February, quite honestly, Brian. And then you start the month of March and that particular trip with a road back-to-back against Minnesota and Chicago, a Sunday afternoon, Monday night, back-to-back on the 1st and 2nd of March. So with our time left, let's talk about the All-Star game and the weekend. Um, Luca is, I think it would be, I think the way to put it is it would be a surprise if he did not play in the Sacramento game Wednesday evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, this will be posted Tuesday morning, so when you're listening to this, but uh, he's expected to play. Uh, it would take a setback for him not to play. He scrimmaged five on five on Sunday after the Mavs didn't, you know, the Mavs don't practice after, no team practices after a back to back, Brian. You know that. Right. And, but, but, you know, it's there a were. a full day off. Yeah. But there were people that were available for five on five scrimmages uh, that Luca was a part of on Sunday. Well, players, people like that. Yep. And there were, and interns uh, as well, player development interns. All, all those guys put together, you know, what was needed to be put together so Luca You think could they had in. a shot? Um, you know, Rick will tell you the interns are pretty good. So. I think you, me, and Luca could probably take on whoever they put on. And the still win. Uh, and then Monday he had a five on five scrimmage as well. So uh, Rick said before Monday's game against Utah that uh, it will all depend on how he tolerates what has happened on Sunday and Monday. But yes, the hope is definitely for him to play. And of course, Rick being Rick, he's obviously going to manage that a little bit more than probably some of the other things you're hearing that are basically it would be a surprise if he doesn't play on Wednesday. And and for the uh, All-Star schedule, he is on the roster for the Rising Stars Challenge, the rookie sophomore game Friday night. Uh, and he is expected to play that game. Uh, How much he'll play, of course, is a different story, right. but, but he is expected to play. some thought it. that because he's in the All-Star game, he wouldn't play Friday night. But uh, Embiid and Simmons, when, when they have a similar situation, the NBA uh, you know, wants him to play that game. And yes, he may play five minutes and jack around and throw some alley-oops mm-hmm. and call it a night, and that's expected, but he is going to be suited up and play. And frankly, that may not be a bad thing for him to just get, get a little sweat on. Sure. And then Sunday night, um, he'll play, he'll start, and I think it's important to note... Be on, be on Team LeBron. Right. It's important to note that 
there's a couple factors why that's important and why we're even bringing it up. One is he really wants to play in this. Yes. Uh, he's an entertainer. He wants to be on the largest stage. He's proud of being, um, you know, one of the few Mavericks to ever start a game. And one of the youngest All-Stars of all time. I mean, he's going to be in the All-Star game, Brian, you know, a week before, a week to 10 days before his 21st birthday. I mean, that's amazing. Right. And there's pride, you know, and I, and I know there's a big point, I think the best point of all of it that you still want to add to it. But I would also say from the Mavs' perspective, there's great pride in this. The Mavs have had, as you've noted, very few players start. Jason Kidd was voted in as a starter. Dirk's one time while playing with the Mavs, that is. Yeah, while playing with the Mavs. He, uh, Dirk was a starter twice, but never voted in. Injury he was in replacement. Injury replacement. So this is this is a great thing for Luka and a great opportunity for him to be on the stage, as you mentioned. This is also a real moment and 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 just time of pride for the Maverick organization to have Luka representing them in this way, uh, because this is just something that in 40 years, this organization has not really experienced very often, obviously. And I think it's important in the player empowerment era. Player empowerment era. era. Um, to develop relationships with the other players. Mm-hmm. He's got relationships with a lot of the international players because of FIBA and a lot of playing in Europe. But, uh, you know, being in the locker room and being around those guys, the parties, the shoot around Saturday morning, all of that, the the um, NBA Cares commitment Friday, mm-hmm. you know, that is important to develop a relationship with those players because you want him to be able to pick up the phone. It could be ten years from now, mm-hmm. but when recruiting a player and saying, "Hey, you know, would you want to come play here?" Just like Kawhi did with PG. Yes, he doesn't have those relationships with a lot of the American players because those are developed either. At the Olympics, Team USA or in AAU, yeah. which he didn't do. At Team USA, yeah, I'm sorry. At Team USA, when you're in a very cloistered, isolated environment, right, and that's really conducive to team building and relationship building between the handful of guys. Which that is part how of the Heatles started. It yes. started from the 2008 Olympic experience. That's exactly right. Yep. So that is a really important reason. The other reason is on the court those players are going to see how fun it is to play with Luca. Yes. And mm-hmm. it's one of the reasons I wanted Giannis to draft him because as fun as it is for Luca to play with his hero LeBron, uh that's not a realistic you know matchup or team up anytime soon. Right. Luka's, if ever. Exactly. Uh LeBron's on the back end of his career, doesn't seem like he's going to go anywhere else. So I wanted Giannis, as long of a shot as it is for Giannis to come to Dallas in 2021, Mm -hmm. uh, to play with Luka and see how fun that is. And I think that uh, you brought up a great, you know, we were talking on our radio postgame show earlier tonight. And one of the things that you brought up is that you saw last year at the All-Star game, like, you know, the relationship with the international player. I mean, you saw it for up close and personal. You were a few feet away when you were at the All-Star game last year and, and being there to be part of Dirk's last All-Star game. You saw Luca, who was there for the Rising Stars Challenge. And the skills and challenge. The skills, and the that skills competition on Saturday night. I mean, he and Jokic were you know, getting along great. Yeah, yucking it up and having all kinds of fun. So that relationship is there, and that's a good thing to have, too. But, yeah, cultivating more relationships with big-name players who – and I think – I, just, I love this point that you make, and you just brought up another thing that's really important about it. This doesn't mean that we're going to see this have results in a year. I mean, this is this is playing the long game. 
potentially. I mean, this might be a five, six, you just said 10 years down the road where you can pick up the phone and because you've cultivated that relationship starting in 2020 and then in all-star games to come, that that might be the kind of thing that makes that, that helps facilitate the kind of move that, that the Mavericks and Luka need to have made many, many years down the road. Yes, and and it, you know, listen. The, the All Star schedule is a busy one. Mm-hmm. I mean, they get in either Thursday night or Friday morning. Yeah, they go through what they call the car wash, which they they do literally about twenty different sit down interviews, mm-hmm. whether it be with radio, with TNT, with uh, NBA Cares. They film promos. They're they're doing yeah. all sorts of stuff. That that is your shot. Yeah. to get at these guys. Then they do an NBA Cares event. Then they all have sponsor commitments. They have parties they want to go to. Yeah, Luke he'll have a lot of it. Jordan brand stuff that he's got to do now exactly. as a representative for them. Nike's going to have uh, appearances for him. He's going to play in the Rising Stars Challenge Friday morning. He's going to have a shoot-around Saturday morning yep. at the Fan Fest mm-hmm. with the West and East teams. Then, you know, Jordan has a party Friday night. He's going to go to that till late in the evening. Or Saturday night, right? No, it's Friday night. Oh, it's Friday night. Okay, after uh, the Rising Stars game. Okay. And then, yep. you know, the game is Sunday. So... They're kept very busy, yeah, and, and and it's a good thing for them to be at that. But it, you know, those are all important, and those are all relationships. And they're they're it, it, the All Star is the NBA Super Bowl. That's yes. when they bring their sponsors in, and you schmooze. It's a mentally exhausting time. It sounds like, <laughs> but you know, it's an important thing for. I, I can't stress the the relationship building that goes on there because these people have social media relationships with other players. Mm-hmm. They also, you know dap and say hello after games out of respect and i know who you are Mm -hmm. but those are good things and those are good things too this is when you can develop a friendship yeah go out and have dinner or have a few drinks and play together get a number and and text and 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 build from there so in the off season you can work out together or go on a vacation together or get your own banana boat so um (laughs) there's a a lot to that man now sure we should say that if Luca had had an injury which kept him out till after the break, and he wasn't even going to play in these games against Orlando and Atlanta coming out of the break. Then they wouldn't risk it, and he wouldn't play. He'd still go and go through some commitments, but he wouldn't play. Mm-hmm. The fact that this was similar to the last injury, and he was always kind of maybe penciled in for this game Wednesday, and now it looks like it's in pen. Uh, they're not risking anything. They weren't. They weren't going to risk anything for him to play, mm-hmm. and. So that's why it's being handled in the way it is. Yeah, and there would never have been, and I think, even though Rick didn't say it this way, there would never would have been like something awkward had he played his first game on the floor had been the All-Star game. It was very clear to me, reading between the lines of what Rick said before the Houston game, and he had been hurt in practice the day before the Houston road game, and when he addressed it that night, and I believe the date on that would have been uh, January 31st, maybe, was when, was when they played down in Houston. I think that was the was date on Friday that game. Night. Yeah, it was Friday night game. Rick said, you know, it's, it's my belief he'll be able to participate in All-Star Weekend, and we want that to happen because we know that's very important for him and it's very important for us. So, so even though, you know, he didn't say, yes, it would be okay if that's his first game back, it's clear he was laying the groundwork for that is something that might happen, and we certainly understand that, and that's not going to be weird for us if he can't play in a game for his team before the All-Star break, and that's the first time he's back out on the floor. But it doesn't look like that we're going to have to worry about that. Well, hopefully this team will hit the All-Star break with their 33rd win. Yeah, that would which, be that would be 60% win percentage at the All-Star break. Uh 33 and, and 33 match and 22. Their uh win, largest win total of the last 3 years. 
Yeah, that's right. They've been 33 and 49 in two of the last three seasons. Yeah, the last time they were uh, in the playoffs was 2015 16, and they were 42 and 40 that particular year. And so, you know, we'll probably spend some time talking about this after the break, but it will be interesting to see kind of what you look at in terms of how you analyze that record. 33 and 22 is winning 60% of your games, but there are 500 teams since early December. They went 16 and 6 to start the year, and they're 17 and 16 since then. Um, and look, I'm sure they're not the first team to do something like that. Have a really soft schedule early, take advantage of it, build up a, a cushion, and then, you know, play the way that they have ever since. And obviously, injuries are a part of that. Luke has missed almost 12 games, 11 full games, and 95%, 98% of another game. And in those 12 games, they've gone 5-7, and seven, Brian. Uh, Porzingis missed a 10-game stretch. So look, they need Luka back. They need those two guys playing together. They need to be health. They need to get healthy during the break and be healthy and ready to hit the ground running against, albeit a heavy road schedule. They went on the road, and the caliber of opponent is less. Is is uh, you know we're talking about one winning team that they're going to play in their first. Uh, in the month of February. Yeah, for the rest of February. And I'm just thinking in my head. Like I think Four left till uh, March 21st. I, I, I think they only have one winning team in their first nine games out of the break. That's it. And we yeah. should mention very quickly that DeLon Wright did go down with a uh, uh, right ankle sprain uh, in the Utah game yep. and didn't come back. But he was he was listed as questionable. We did understand that he was questionable return. So okay. maybe maybe he'll be okay to play on uh, you know to, to, so that way you don't have to run up Luca's minutes real high in the first game back from an injury on Wednesday night but if not you got other options you got Brunson you got Berea I mean you'll you'll be able to manage that presumably well enjoy Mexico while the I rest will. of us work yes I will and yes and I'll make sure to lots of lots of pictures on the gram yes mark.followwill on Instagram sure or at mfollowwill on Twitter your food and all of your workouts of course um, there may not be too many workouts there'll be a few but not too many well, but I'm I'll Brian, send you plenty of pictures, Brian. I'm Brian Damaris. He's Mark Followell. This is 77 Minutes in Heaven. We will be back with you after the All-Star break.